Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do? Now that my master is taking the position away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a little, very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then... You have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth. Who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to start off this morning by telling you about someone in my life who over the last several years has made quite a difference in my way of thinking and my way of looking at a lot of things that I thought I had fully looked at. But through her eyes and through the eyes of some others, I began to realize that my vision was not very clear at all. I've spoken to you about this before, even in the short time that I've been here. The term that this person uses 
when she's teaching vestries and others about racism, institutional racism, is the term white privilege. First time I heard that was probably, I'd say at least 15 years ago, in a class that was intended to be a way of dealing with um, racial issues. Um, I didn't swallow it very well. Uh, I wanted to argue about it. I felt um, pinched. I had always been interested in um, equality. I simply did not understand how my being raised in the South, being in white skin, coming from a low middle class family, a father and a secretary, how that made me privileged, how that made me white privileged. I remember from my childhood when one of the big occasions in our family's life would be for my mom and dad to take us out to supper on a Friday night and then go down to the Fox Theater for some production that was going on. Now there is an assumption in this story that many of you know that Atlanta and the Fox Theater was a grand establishment, still is. But we were there to watch a movie or something. I don't really remember what it was. We were down in the front, so near the stage. And I remember in the course of that evening, looking up, way, way up into the balcony and seeing persons of color, persons whose skin were not white, coming in that way, all the way up there, and sitting up there, when there was every bit enough room for all of us to have been down on the floor. I was young, eight or 10 years old probably, as best I can figure. And something in me said, that's not right. Why are they doing that? So when I heard this term later in my life, I was already a priest, right privilege. As I said, it pinched and I pushed hard against it. A few years ago now, I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Catherine Meeks. She is a woman who was born in Arkansas. She, some reason or other, in her biography misses part of this, and I haven't read a full biography of her because I don't know there's one out there yet. I'm sure there will be. She moved to Macon, Georgia. She became active in the Episcopal Church, and she is now the woman who runs the beloved community, the Commission on Racial Justice in our diocese. And some of us in this room, I suspect, have had the privilege of being to one of her seminars. Catherine calls it the way she sees it. She doesn't back away from making us white folk uncomfortable. But her goal is not to make us uncomfortable. Our goal is to let our discomfort lead us to finding a better way of relating with other people. 
Her father, who was in uh, Arkansas, now Catherine is retired from teaching after about 35 years, and I think she's been retired now maybe four years or so. She, she's had a long career, and you can imagine kind of what age frame we're in or what year it might have been in Arkansas. They had, she, Catherine had a brother. His name was Gerald. And at some point, Gerald got a very bad stomachache. And the family did everything that they could do, home remedies. Now, he was an illiterate sharecropper, her dad. Her mother was a teacher. Her mother would go on and finish college. She actually finished college the same year that Catherine finished high school. And she continued to teach. But at this time, poverty was their label. Gerald didn't get better with any of the home remedies. They were glad to take him. The pain got so unbearable, they knew they had to get him to a hospital. So he was able to find a friend, her father, to find a friend who would drive them to El Dorado, Arkansas, to a hospital. And the little boy was an ungodly pain at this point. They would not see him. They would not treat him because his skin was brown. They said, you will have to go to the charity hospital. The charity, they'd already driven two and a half miles to get to the hospital that turned them down. In order for him to get help at the charity hospital, they had to go two and a half hours back. And then it was another 70 miles to this place in Shreveport. The father finally got a neighbor or somebody to take Gerald and him to the charity hospital. By the time they got there, Gerald was beyond help. His appendicitis was so infected, there was nothing anyone could do. And Gerald died shortly after he got to the hospital. He was 12 years old. Catherine's father never recovered from losing his son. He never got over it. He was bitter. His life was just a dismal event from then on. He couldn't get over it. Catherine talks in her book, one of her essays, about how many times she heard that story from her father. The story was never history for him. It's that story that you hear somebody tell, and it might have happened 10 years ago, but it happened yesterday. There was no distancing him from what had happened. A bitter, bitter man. Catherine decided she had to find another way. 
She was unwilling to take on her father's bitterness. She was equally unwilling to ignore the racial inequality that fed into her brother's untimely death. She decided, as a Christian, there had to be another way. Catherine Meeks has dedicated her life to finding another way. She has done things that we would not be able to think that one small statute black-skinned woman in Macon, Georgia, could ever pull off. But she did. She has. She keeps on. She is changing the lives of the clergy and many of the people in this diocese by asking us to look at ourselves to accept ourselves, to accept our prejudices, to accept the things that we think before we've even thought we thought them. But she won't let us off just doing that. She wants us to reach across and make things better to help change what she again and again refers to as institutional racism. I don't need, I'd hope after saying this, that you un may understand that when I say white privilege now, I understand what she meant. And I look to see and to learn more about it. The truth of the matter is, is a lot of things that happened, happened before I was even a teenager. But I didn't know about all the things that had stacked the deck against so many persons of color. Through Catherine and her classes and what that stirred up in me over these last years, I've been on a journey to learn more, to try to understand how it is that we have this incredible separation that seems to keep on going. It's education, it's in the prisons, the welfare system, even voting rights apparently, still. Now you may wonder why I'm telling you this story. The reason I'm telling it to you is because I think that the actions of Catherine Meeks is what Jesus was applauding in the parable that we just read. This is one of those parables that can drive a regular person nuts and a nutty person beyond nuts. I have read and studied and monkeyed with this story so much this week that I will truly say to you, when this sermon is over, I will be delighted for it to be three more years we'll have to deal with it again. <laughs> Here's this manager. I used to think it was just kind of funny. I'm too old to beg and 
and too proud to, I'm too old to dig and too proud to beg. I think that's kind of, you know, funny in a way, coming back. But the reality is, is he was in a bind because he knew he'd been fired because his master told him he was being fired. So what was he going to do? He just said he couldn't dig and he couldn't do, and he wasn't going to get anybody else to let him be the steward. Who would going to let him be the steward when they already knew he was, you know, messing around with the funds and everything, embezzling, you might say. So he thought quickly on his feet and he said, you know what? I bet you if I make a deal with these people that owe my master money, if I sort of, you know, fix it so they don't have to pay the master as much. The master didn't really know how much the debtors owed. That's part of the parable you need to know. So if he could, the, if the steward could just hand the master enough to make him believe he'd gotten what he needed, then he'd be off the hook, so to speak, with, that, with the master. And then these guys, these debtors over here, they'd be delighted because they didn't have to pay as much as they thought they were going to have to pay. And then Jesus applauds the unjust steward, which in biblical circles is where all this stuff starts causing trouble. Why is he applauding an unjust steward? I think it was just a simple way, an unsimple, simple way of saying. Disciples. Think on your feet. You have going to have trouble following after me. It's not going to be easy. People are going to come at you from all sides. You're going to get it from the government. You're going to get it from the scribes and the Pharisees. You're going to get it from members of your own family. You're going to have to think on your feet if you're going to be able to do what we want to do, which is to tell my story, to tell the story of Jesus. And it would turn out that Jesus was absolutely right. Do you know that in the early years of the church, the, the scriptures were written on these long things, you know, scrolls or whatever, and because they were uh, the disciples, the followers of the way, people following Jesus, the men and women, had to go in underground in order to be able to meet together. They had to have a secret code word to let somebody in because they were afraid of spies. And then they were afraid that if they left the whole scroll in one piece, it would get stolen and they would have nothing. So you know what they did? The letters of Paul and Timothy and others were torn into pieces. And there were home churches. And they would take part of it to a home church, and that church would study it. And then they would pass it on to the next church, and the next church, and so on. So that was how they were able to make it work. I often wondered when they gathered them all up if they ever got them back in the right order. So sometimes when I'm reading Paul particularly, I just say, whoops, they got those letters messed up. <laughs> but you had to think on your feet. They couldn't just be out in the open. 
Catherine had a decision to make. God had given her all these talents. Talent on top of talent. This dear woman has a degree from Pepperdine. She has a social work degree from, I believe it's Mercer. And she has a PhD from Emory University. All these things she has done and studied the nature of racism. Why did she do that? She wanted a long-term goal. It wasn't just her wanting not to be bitter over what had happened to her brother. She wanted to work a path to be available for other people, white and black, to have something better down the road, as she terms it, to build the beloved community. She could have just taken care of herself, but that's not what she heard the gospel calling her to do. And I know that we're not Catherine Meeks, but we are who God made us, each one of us. And the question is, is how are we using what God has given us? How do we use the talents and gifts, the financial uh, money that we have? How do we use it to better the beloved community? What does that look like in our own lives? I'm one of these people that doesn't think that Christianity is for an elite few. I think Christianity is for all of us on whatever level we're on, whatever stage of life we're in, whatever we've done, we have more to do. God doesn't tell us to quit. God tells us to use our resources to build the kingdom of God. Sure, he was okay for a moment praising the unjust steward because that guy figured something out to save his skin and he didn't hurt anybody doing it. You and I have to figure out how do we get to these people in our neighborhoods in our families that just have turned on the back on the church and we don't know how to get them in. I heard a sermon this morning from an Episcopal priest who's now at St. Michael's and All Angels. I believe it's in Houston, Texas. And he said, you know what, people? Why don't we just tell people what the church can do for you? Why don't we just tell people what it's like to have the friends that we have in church? How they're there for us, how they care about us, how they make us feel good, how they call us when we're sick, take care of us when we need food. Why can't we just tell them? The world out there is dying for this kind of relationship. And we don't ever, or seldom ever, 
just open our mouth and say, my church is where I find life. My church is where I find my friends. We're not done, people. We're not done. How can we be thinking on our fate in such a way that we can do for others to help the beloved community grow and prosper from now until then to beyond? Amen.